I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right, so welcome back everyone to another episode of The Dealmaker's DNA. Um, I'm excited uh, for the guest we have today. It's James Buron. So James currently is the co-founder and president of CASA, which is the Canadian uh, Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets. Also a member of Canadian Investment Fund Standard Committee and has a you know eclectic background, which I'm sure we will talk about, ranging from you know being an investment advisor back in the day to sitting on some boards, some consulting, so pretty, uh, pretty well-rounded uh, career. And obviously, given uh, what you do, uh, James at Casa, you get to uh, speak to a lot of asset managers. So James, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Love to be here. And uh, yeah, you say eclectic. I think it's something that a, if a recruiter would look at my background, my resume would be like, what the heck do you do? And I'm like, yeah, what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah, you know what? Playing it by the book is, is never fun. So I'm, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm all for that. So, so James, I always love starting these conversations. You know, we, we don't know each other that well. We've, we've obviously met in the past. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd lo- I want to know your story. I mean, you know, I, I like to start early and not just read off your, your, uh, your resume, which, uh, you know, I could find on LinkedIn. Where were you born? How did you get your start? How did you land up, you know, being where you're at now? We'd love to hear some of those early years. Holy crap. We're going way back there. Okay. Uh, well, I was born you're not in- that old, James. <laughs> I was born about 50 years ago, back in the Paw, Manitoba, which is uh, about 10,000 people. And uh, I was always there from until about 1980. And my dad, my dad got off the plane in Vancouver once in December 79. And he's like, what? There's no snow here. We would come out and see my, my grandma and grandpa every year. And my mom's like, yeah, like there's no snow here. And then little did I know that the following August that we would be moving out to BC and uh, grew up in Vancouver Island, uh, 12 years there, 10 years in Vancouver two years in Korea, uh, reverse takeover. My wife took me there. So uh, we had gone over there. I think it was on our fifth trip. And and we had this, this chap say, well, shoot, you know so much about hedge funds. You should just, you should be here and work with me. And I'm like, okay, uh, I don't know. show me a contract. And then he did. So I was like, okay, I always wanted to kind of be in Korea and kind of figure out how, because um, it's not like you go to Amsterdam where people are tall and have an accent. Like if, when you go to Korea, anywhere in Asia, really, like I'd been to Japan, and Philippines and it's 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 entirely different. And uh, so I was there for two years. So every season. So you said you always wanted to be in Korea. Why? What what drew you to wanting that foreign experience? Well, I think it's when like since I met my wife, and so we had been married for a few years, and it was just um, it was just so different. Like the 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 cultures are so different, and and I think when you're in the fishbowl, you kind of assume that everybody thinks that way. And I was like, okay, so how did how does that what, what's going on here? How does that work? And so I went over there. I was just trying to immerse myself in it. Uh, didn't learn a language too much. I could read and write. And uh, so that was that was good. Good for ordering and stuff, the menu. But uh, really just a lot of the cultural cues where people would do certain things and you scratch your head going, why would you someone do that? But when you hear the cultural context, like, okay. Hi- hierarchy is a hell of a thing. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, we sold a business to a South Korean public uh, company and I went over there as part of that deal. And Man, oh man, I tell the story all the time, but the, the lessons I learned uh, were were pretty incredible. And, and speak about tall, I was the only six foot three white guy with a beard and no hair. 
probably an all of Seoul. So, yeah, yeah, because yeah, there's only a few hundred thousand foreigners, kind of like being in, in Tokyo too. And yeah, how you walk in a room, like which order you go in, where you sit down, and so for example, the sitting down. So one of my uh, juniors said, "Oh no, James, you shouldn't sit here. You have to. You should sit here." I was like, "Okay, well, I don't know what's the difference, but all the senior person should have their back to the wall." And so two reasons: one is you have to focus on them. And second is they can survey the rest of the room and tell people to do stuff while you're focusing on them. And I was like, wow, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like that's uh, <laughs> that's the power position, eh? So if you were the Korean, if you have them sit on behind on the wall, you're basically saying, hey, you're the you're the big dude in this in this conversation. So that was that was that was actually pretty cool. Uh, and then when I came back to Canada, I was back back to Vancouver, which now seemed very small, and I really loved having Four Seasons again. So uh, we turned a loft to Toronto. And uh, in 05 and did retail structured products and then private equity and real estate funds with ICICI Bank and did my did my Kaya designation. And uh, and that was like mind blowing too to do do that in the back in 06 was it was still relatively new. It's been the fourth year. I'm like less than I think 688 is my number. And uh, I started doing some uh, some events for the Kaya Association in Toronto and 2010. We did 10 events. And then the person doing my job at AMA had left and someone sent the, 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 the mail in from, from Gary Ostwich, the chair, saying, we're looking for somebody. And they said, hey, shit, James, you could do this job. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, ICICI had sacked everybody Earth Day 2009. So I happened to be out of work for two years during the crisis, which is fantastic. But uh, and then I was like, yeah, OK. So I started worked at AMA from April 2011 till the end of 2017. And uh, then my colleague and I left there and we started CASA a little while later, two distinct uh, decisions on that. But we, uh, yeah, I mean, startup, like, so when I talk to startups, you know, it's not a startup unless you're terrified every once in a while, like, oh my God, this is getting really crazy with cash flow or whatever. Okay, sell some RSPs, get some money out, keep going. And now that it's been three years, we've been really lucky to have quite a few initial members come on very quickly and more over the last while and uh, just been able to, I guess fulfill the fulfill what people wanted. We try to keep expectations low, which probably helps. But uh, we've been able to kick out a bunch of bunch of events. So, so you obviously have the, a bit of an entrepreneurial bug. You know, take a step back. You, you mentioned that you you were born in Manitoba. You know, into a small. I don't know if you can't call it a town or a city. But how much does that impact you know the future version of you? I mean, obviously, living and growing up in, in something you know a small place changes the way you view the world what you know what are some of the learnings you took from that yeah i guess and also when it was when i was on vancouver island it was in parksville which was six thousand people which grew to 30 in the summer and then you go to seoul which is like what 17 million or something crazy yeah it's just <laughs> absolutely nuts and and so one thing i guess from this being in a small town is and i always do this i always assume that everybody knows everything like at the end of the day if somebody you know has a bad deal, then everybody else will know about it. And if you do something, then everybody else will know how good or bad it was. And that's kind of been my my thing when I um like when we're do, looking at dealing with our members. You know, if if one member gets a great deal, like why wouldn't the other ones really get pissed off? Like, and I just kind of assume that they're gonna they're gonna know, and they come back to say, James, what the heck is this? So okay, we just don't do the deals. I mean, we have volume pricing and stuff like that, but that's a bit different. But you know, not something like. Oh, Elon, you're my buddy here. Here, here's a your half price on your membership. Like, what, what, why would that? Yeah. So, that's kind of our our thing that I guess I learned from being in a small town because everyone knows knows everybody else's business. And then you go to Seoul, 
And it's, it's something like that too. They're in cliques, they're in small cliques. It is a big city, but in the financial community, everyone knows everybody else. Vancouver, for sure. Toronto, I mean, it depends on what, what clique you're in, but once you're in those, those cliques, it's, you have those, those small groups where everyone knows what everybody else is doing. So, so what did your parents do to spark the interest in traveling and having kind of the guts to, you know, move to Korea and, you know, be in Vancouver and then Toronto and, you know, that, that they obviously, you know, provided you something that lit, lit some adventure into your personality. Well, my family went to, went to, uh, came to Canada, 1862, 65 to, uh, Winnipeg. And then we headed up North, like after my dad graduated, well, before I got born too, but and I guess you want you want to get out of there <laughs> to some degree and see the world. But uh, and then when we moved in like grade nine or when I was nine years old, so grade four, it's like, wow, like, oh, I can just kind of pick up and do other stuff here. And then, um, you know, go, and then go to school. And I, and I went to Japan four weeks in 89 for six weeks in, in 1990. Uh, I was in Philippines for a month in, in December, all of December 98. So had kind of gone out and seen a few places. When I was actually nine, I went to um, to Kitchener, Waterloo to see my aunt. Uh, so done a, done a bit of travel, and I always kind of liked that, and getting out and seeing different people from different spots and how they like how they do things that you would go, wow, this is a different way of doing things. But it's not wrong, or it's just different. Like there's other ways of looking at the world. And I think that's what got me the job at ICICI Bank because I'd already worked offshore. And so I was used to there being in something else other than the Canadian way. And I think if I was born in Toronto, I had been here the whole time, it would have been, could have been different. Like, I don't know, I would, may, have, may have just simply um, just take, kind of taken things as they were. And then, but this way, I just saw so many different things that I was, as I was growing up or as I, as I was a little bit older. My dad had his own business. Like he was doing accounting businesses. He was with the government and then had his own business in the PAW had the same thing in Parksville and, you know, had a lot of freedom, worked at home back when it wasn't sexy, back when it wasn't mandated by law. You know, he also had an office sometimes too, but it was kind of neat to see him working and, you know, then jump in the pool kind of thing. I was like, wow, that's pretty good. You know, we're no, uh, you know, we're not, we don't own the Mavericks or anything, but it was was just kind of nice to have that freedom, I think. So you mentioned that you were out of work after the crisis in a way. Oh yeah. I'm a, you know, that must have been a trying time. And, and I'm, I'm a massive, massive believer that adversity for the right people is like the greatest tool ever. You know, one of the things I ask all of our potential employees is, you know, what's the hardest thing you've got to overcome? Because I think people that everything came naturally, silver spoon, you name it. I, I think it's actually a huge disadvantage when it comes to building businesses because adversity is just the name of the game. How much did that adversity and I guess other adversities throughout your life impact the person you are today? And, and, and how do you view adversity? Yeah, it's uh, when you're in it, it doesn't seem like it's all that fun or that you'll learn very much from it, but you end up doing that. So when we came out of ICICI, it, was, uh, it wasn't too bad on the way. I had some time. I actually wrote a little, a little bit when I was in, in the summer and that's where my consulting business came in, Veron Consulting. So, you know, that's, all, that's usually code for being unemployed. But I was writing stuff with Kaya. I was active. I was going to uh, the grading jamborees and, and the exam council and working on a fair bit with that. And, um, you know, money wasn't rolling in. I did have a house that I had purchased earlier on plan. So I had to make sure I had something to show the bank, I guess. But, um, yeah, you, know, you just really buckle down and just do it. Like, what are you going to do? Just sit there and cry? Like, figure it out. And, you know, like I say, like I had this house coming up and um, actually got uh, purchased it in, uh, off plans in April 08. So a year before. 
and they came out in July 2010. So I had to have some income to show the bank. So it was getting, not just like burning RSPs. So I went, so I, uh, yeah, just got to do it. And I did some writing, like I say, made a whole course for, for uh, alternative investments, which was, which was pretty fun. It was like, and I got it down so I could actually do things in really short order. I was doing conference briefings for a thing called Global Arc, Absolute Return Congress in, in London and Boston. I went out there for them. But also, but as was as I was doing it, I found that instead of it could go from five weeks to three weeks to two weeks to do the same amount of work and and kick out a quality product. So it uh, it really focuses you when you got to do something rather than just like I'll do it when I have to. So I think that's uh, and then so now when we come to this, it's like okay, we got a we got a, a grand scheme of how we want to do stuff. But also when it comes to we have an event in three weeks, okay, now who we're going to have there? How's it going to work? With webinars, you can get tighter on the timing, but you know you've got to be able to you got to be able to produce both a good panel or a good good topic, and also get get people in the room. So it's uh, yeah, you're learning the crunch, I guess. So so for those that don't know what Casa is, can you give a, just a brief synopsis of what you guys do? Yeah, we're a trade association, probably the biggest for alternatives, definitely in Canada, and not not definitely not compared to the states. So, but uh, you know we have. Um, our membership is a lot of folks. There's about a quarter of our investors, pension plans, family offices, dealers, and then we have every kind of of money manager, whether it's cryptocurrency, liquid alts, which actually we worked on with the with the with the government for like six years, hedge funds, real estate lending, PE, venture incubator, so all that, and then a quarter of service providers, so you know the accountants and lawyers and funded men, and then we have ten founders that have joined, and they join to uh, kind of be part of the group. And get get access to some of the angels, but also to do things within our uh, within our conferences. Either attend them. We have a founders pitch competition. We've had some pretty cool uh, pretty cool judges on that. Uh, we do probably three a year. And our main output is 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 events. We did 101 webinars last year, 51 podcasts, and this year probably about 140, 150 plus another 40 podcasts. So that's and then we the advocacy. With uh, with the Securities Commission as it comes up, we just did a letter on dealing with real estate appraisals. Yeah, so kind of wherever our members want to take it, and a lot of them there are there to meet. Like investors are there to meet managers, managers are there to meet investors, founders are there to, you know, meet meet the angels and the VCs, and then the uh, service providers are there to meet pretty much anybody and and you know, do their audit for them or their their legal. We have some U.S. We have like twenty percent of our members actually non-Canadian, entirely. No one here, no operations here. They use us basically as their their window on Canada, which enables them to uh, to get a foothold here or to increase increase their business. So, yeah. so you're you know you're the first person that I've had on that heads up an association, and it's interesting because I'm sure a lot of people don't appreciate that you know just because you're a trade association, it's still a business. They they, they probably don't think about that. But I think what's also unique is that you know in a way you have a ton of different stakeholders and you know bosses because you got to make all your stakeholders happy. I mean. Maybe speak about what learnings have been throughout your career on on managing a whole bunch of stakeholders that you can't just be like do this because they're not an employee of yours. Yeah. Mostly the other way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we've uh, we had lots of committees and such, and you're right. It's it's we have 263 odd members, probably about 2,000 people attached to them. I think well, 1750 just in Canada plus plus the US or non Canadian folks and. I always think at the end of the day, you try to make it simple, right? So when they get the renewal notice at the end of the year, will they say, huh, that seems like a lot of money. 
or will it go just pay this thing this is like this is nothing let's go let's do more this is fantastic so or uh oh we didn't do very much but we were really busy uh let's try to do more next year but you know we'll, we'll keep going for another year of course let's go different companies have different ways of doing it some of them have like once they're in they're in pretty much forever because of the the way their budgets work others it's zero budgeting so every year it's like hey why, we have to justify this others is like how many leads did we get out of this others it's it's you know it's it's really interesting how how there's so many different ways that people look at it and uh that's one thing that i learned when i was interviewing for aim i was like why are people here uh why would they they join an association and a lot of them it's, it's give back too because we do sessions on how to start a fund or how to you know run a uh, we want to do one more like on startups as well and people just want to make sure that the next generation doesn't you know doesn't have as hard a time they did we do career panels. We do like 10 of them a year now. We're doing actually four in just, for, in just in Q4 or Q, Q1 here, uh, maybe four or five. And folks love to kind of, again, talk to that next generation of, hey, this is what you could do. I didn't even know this way this thing existed when I was in school, but you know, you could be portfolio manager, sales, prime broking. You know, you can, the legal and audit is, is kind of specific because you have to have the specific uh, skills and, and licenses, but or, you know, if you're starting up a business or you're you're going to run a, you know, a venture platform, like do the people even know what that is? <laughs> so we just love getting the, getting all the word out. I have to imagine that a huge part of your day to day is is rooted in collaboration, you know, with all many stakeholders as, as you have. You know, I think that a lot of people struggle with the idea of collaboration at the most you know, how to do it the most effective way. Uh, I would say that COVID has made that uh, abundantly clear. Um, you know, what have you learned about the art of collaboration through your career? Because, I mean, to be honest, that's probably one of the, the stronger skill sets you have to have in running an association. How do you view collaboration? What do you think people get right and wrong about, uh, about working with other stakeholders? I think taking folks for granted and that they'll want to do something is like a first mistake that people will make. And they'll say, oh, yeah, they're going to want to do this. And they get all excited. And then when they don't, they're like, oh, crap, this is a bad idea. Well, no, maybe it's just like we're doing one, like we have our PE and venture paper, which, which you guys are in. And then we have our, we're just doing one, we're putting together one on quantitative investing. So I literally will go, go to 17 quantitative investors that are in membership and others who are associated, whether they're investing in it or, or supporting that area and say, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's the pricing. Here's how we're structuring it. Here's when we expect to have it done. Let me know if you're in. And then I'll go back a few weeks later if they haven't replied and just send another one because people are busy and this isn't the first thing on their plate. They're looking for revenue. You know, some of them are just like, yeah, we're in, done, let's go or let's do a call. And you kind of got to work at everybody else's speed too because, uh, but I'll say, I'll say to them, like we're doing, we're going to have four to eight on this and I'm asking 17. So if you're in, you know, please let me know earlier because for one thing, we got to get it done. The second, I don't want to over, overhaul, you know, you know, over overwhelm the writer with having, 15 interviews to do this thing and have it like 400 pages. Like we, we tell them the scope and, and why we're doing it and how we're doing it and the reasoning behind what we're doing. And when people see that, they're usually like, oh yeah, okay. Or it's not for me or tell me more and it's either for them or not. So just assuming that one company will do it. Like I've been wrong so many times. I just like, I just forget it. I'll just send it out and then we'll get people that are interested and go. And otherwise it's a, it's a no, but we'll do something else. I've definitely learned that like you don't making assumptions on why others do what they do. You just don't have all the facts. So I, I, I'm a big believer that you should never make assumptions. You have a really interesting vantage point, you know, working with as many alternative, you know, asset managers and, you know, and, and others. 
what is it that makes Canada special? Where are we leading? What are we doing well? And where are we failing? Um, you know, as it, as it relates to the global, you know, marketplace of uh, of alternative strategies. Well, we've done. Uh, well, we haven't done any under Casa Banner, the former Banner. We did 14 sessions around the world in 12 cities. So we did London three times. We did Dubai, Geneva, Zurich, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, Sydney, where else? Minneapolis, DC, Chicago, and Boston. That's my list. <laughs> so we went out, we went to the, either the consulates or the high commissioner or the or Canada house, like the residences and that, the up on the hill in Singapore. And we did a reception where we had a Canadian manager and a local investor talk about whatever going on, or someone from Canada, it didn't have to be managing necessarily, actually. We had one where we brought in uh, a big big Ontario pension plan who did a, did a preamble before for a couple hours, a, a fireside on how they invested. And one thing uh, I learned about that, well, two things, uh, so there's the, the plus and minus here. So the good thing is everybody, many, many people see Canada as, as nice and boring conservative banks didn't blow up like we would do we did this like you know before, uh, after the crisis so it started in 2012 we're regulated all of our all of our hedge funds are regulated like even if you before dollar one and so we have uh we have that to to uh i guess pe- people see it as kind of suffocating a bit but you know what i think if regulation is your problem then you've probably got bigger problems because there's a lot of things that go with that regulation and especially in the hedge fund area like um having a business plan having business continuity plans, having, you know, having people with their CFA designation, if you're going to be running money, that's probably an important thing. So they see us as kind of boring and, and they not, they also see us as being a commodity play, which may or may not be right. We have a lot of tech here. Well, that, that's changing. I've spoken to people like in the U S and elsewhere they've, oh yeah, Toronto, the hotspot, like we, the guys in Montreal is great for AI and all this. So normally you probably wouldn't hear that to be the first thing that they'd say, the downside and why we did those and why we were going to, well, we're continuing to do them virtually with our consulate in New York and also with, uh, you know, in real life when we, when we get back on planes is that, and it's based on a book called Mexicans Don't Drink Molson. Canadians don't go out and toot their horn. They will go out and just kind of assume that, I don't know, that everyone knows what they're doing or that they aren't good enough or that they're too small or something. But if you look around the world, and these are hedge fund stats, uh, not, not in the, like the PE side, but imagine similar. There's a very similar stratum, 100 million, quarter billion, half a billion, billion plus. We don't have anybody really over 3 billion. But if you lop off the top of that, we are very similar to the rest of the world in how many hedge funds are small, medium, and large. We don't have the super large, the super tankers of the world. But, but the thing is, you know, we have a, you, have some, you know somebody with a $5 million fund here. Okay. There's a $4 million fund in Connecticut you've never heard of. There's a 3 million pound one in London that you'll never hear of because the big boys, the seven or eight, 35 billion, like the Wintons of the world, they're, you know, they they get the headlines. So I think we, we always look around and think we're, we're a lot of small, small folks, small, small managers, small, small companies, companies like Shopify and others have been changing that. Are they outliers? Yeah. But you know, a few outliers becomes a trend. So I don't think we, we, we play up in our strengths enough. And that's kind of something that I learned from, um, we have, we do we have a mentorship program, and every men, every every mentor mentee that goes into that, they do a strengths finder, and so there's 36 areas, and I did that with Caroline, uh, and we found that our strengths are exactly the opposite. Like if you they're color coded, it's like the rainbows are flipped. It's like perfect. That's what you want. That's what you want in a co-founder. That's what you want. In someone that you're gonna be working with, and so that you have 
both have great skills and then forget about the weaknesses just focus on the strengths and just like just ram them up like let's go <laughs> like mine's like communicating futures and positivism all that kind of like airy fairy stuff she gets shit done and then so great that's that's what you need and then paul's like a a mixture of us and so it's good to know kind of how each each person thinks and then we were able to just like drive ahead and get 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 it done so you mentioned that there's a whole bunch of you know people join this organization and they're like their eyes are open to all the different jobs that are out there you know again you know you have the luxury of seeing all this from 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 above and you know for those that are listening that are younger that are that love the idea of being an asset management love the idea of being in something that's unique and maybe a little niche you know people hear about you know crypto as an example i know i know nine point just just uh you know raised a fund you know specifically for crypto and, and others are, are doing the same thing and you hear about other you know strategies what are those strategies that you're seeing that people should pay close attention to as they're entering their careers as potentially great places to start looking to get in at the ground floor um, that you believe will have a lot of uh, you know traction moving forward. Yeah, crypto is interesting. I was lucky enough to meet Fred Pye a few years ago, and uh, you know that guy has been just amazing. Like he's done things that no one even thought you could do, like having the token version of gold back in the 1980s when he had those gold, silver, platinum uh, certificates. Why would you keep gold in your mattress? What are you crazy? You're gonna get you're gonna get robbed, and uh, why keep it? in a safety deposit box, which costs you so much every year, and, and you can still get robbed. So why not just have a cert? And then he you know, ran Fidelity, and they raised $7.5 billion, him and his two buddies, in, uh, in, a, in a few years. So they brought Fido from zero to, to hero. And then now with the 3IQ, like he, he was talking about that years ago. And so he was pretty much not, not ground floor, though. Like it was already out. People already knew what Bitcoin was. I knew what it was. He, he talked to me. But, you know, it wasn't anywhere near where it is now. And was able to I mean, the guy's 60 plus, like, but he's an old dog that learns new tricks. And I think if you're a young dog, you got to really know those tricks. So, and being able to bring to bear all of the the knowledge, the structuring of how these products, because it's really like a, it's kind of a kick-ass product that he has. And so for new folks, like I'm trying to tell my kids, like, do you want to know what Bitcoin is or Ethereum and the blockchain? And and they're busy doing their TikToks and stuff. I mean, they do study, they study economics and that, and, but, uh, you know, one's in university, but, you know, I'm like, geez, you have access to all these guys. You could actually learn from people that, uh, like we've met Vitalik Patun and, and, and such. So we can kind of get, get access to that. But whatever you have a passion in, just really get into it. And I think cryptocurrency is great. I mean, there's, it's probably where things are going. And you look at the adoption, it's kind of like the internet years back and, and how, how that's grown. It'll go through fits and starts. It's a bit different from the way the internet was has has evolved and and probably will evolve, but we find uh, there's but the, you know even the old guard like there's persistent inefficiencies in the Canadian bond market. So if you're really into credit analysis and uh, financial statements, you can find a lot of screaming buys in there. Yeah, but you have to go through and do the work and figure out how to how to read them and how to uh, you know how to trade them and what's in the legends in the uh, in the, or the in the in the actual offering documents that may have been issued years ago. So you got to do your research, you know, and people that have done their research have been able to find inefficiencies or find opportunities where other people have just said, eh. and then, you know, for someone that's new, that's a big deal for them. That's like a little niche that they can carve out. Stop crypto and you, you, you alluded to the bond market. Are there any other alternative strategies that you think people aren't taking as seriously as they should? 
Well, I, I hear a lot of people that want to get into venture and, and private equity, but they're not quite sure how. And I think the best way to do that is really to run a business or find some way to get act, get get operating experience because nothing teaches you that fa- faster than actually, you know, instead of being a financial financial investor, you're actually an operating investor. So I think for those areas, you know, walking into a, a private equity shop and saying, hey, I want to work work here as, but I'm more on the finance side, there's a ton of people doing that. But if you go and you actually start working in, in a business, and even if it's something that's rather unsexy, but you get that experience, and at some point it becomes sexy too. I mean, you could have something like a, like a heavy machinery. And, you know, there's probably a carve out to be done in heavy machinery for sales or what have you in, in Ontario. Actually, no guy did it. So, you know, there are these private equity plays that people can do where they can, and then they can apply that, that learning to other businesses and, uh, or even to the, the same business, but in another city or another, another country. So getting the operating experience, I think would be interesting if someone's, because it, like I say, the business school pumps out tons of grads. And so if you have that also, and then you get the operating side, then uh, you're not really better than the, the people that just did the operating side, but you have that other kind of transcendental financial knowledge where you can think about how, how this is rolling up into the financial statements and how that can, how that can affect the business long-term. But also from the other side, if you just had the financials and you don't get the operating business and how how business is done in that particular industry, then it's going to be tougher to really make a wholesale change to it unless you, because you're just trying to apply a formula, which is kind of a financial formula. Yeah. So I have one last kind of topic of conversation before I let you go. And I, again, appreciate your time, James. You've had the benefit of seeing asset managers accumulate assets quickly, slowly, and everything in between. There's some some patterns of behavior. I mean, obviously track record, et cetera, et cetera. But I know I know a lot of great strategies that don't accumulate assets because the founder is horrible at raising money. You know, what are the you know the the the, the fund managers that are that are that are raising significant amounts of capital and those that aren't, what are they what, what are they doing right and what are they doing wrong in attracting that sort of capital? I think it comes down to having the right team and knowing when to add to it and Hiring a salesperson earlier rather than later and being consistent, consistent in everything. Like returns are, they're going to move around. But if your returns are consistent with your strategy or how you said that things, things might play out if X, Y, or Z happens, then great. But there's also the consistency in the messaging. So many times things go rough patch, managers will climb up. And then it's like, well, no, now you tell them you're down 12%. And here's why. And here's how it works and that. Otherwise... You think you're not going to talk to them when things are things are bad. You know, it's like the kid who, oh, everything's fine at school, mom. Got a D, crap. You know, <laughs> and only come home with the A's, right? And then having the whole, like say, the, and the team too has to be, all, everybody has to be on the same page. Like, because everybody is fully indoctrinated, Kool-Aid and all that. And, and everyone gets it. Like everyone from, a, from a, a philosophical view of, okay, this is how we're dealing with people. Uh, this is how we we, we look at the, at, uh, at our investments or dealing with our clients or dealing with service providers that we have so that when, when tough times come and they will, then at the, you know, when it, everybody's together and saying, no, no, this is, this is, this is how we're doing. This is an easy decision. We're not going to bother with the, with the, the um, I guess the, the ethically challenged decision. Cause that's where, that's where problems come up. People have a tough operating environment. And then they start to shave corners and they either do, they either lose clients because of it as their customers, or they start to lose the, their, their authenticity and with their, 
people that are lending money to them, they go, well, what are you doing here? What, where's this money? What? So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a dangerous slope. So I'm, I'm a big believer that like, you know, I have my employees come to me and say, you know, this is a situation, what should I do? And I'm like, I'll give you the same advice every time. Tell the truth, be transparent. It's, it's amazing to me how people overthink like and try and like position, just tell the truth. People are not stupid and they appreciate when people actually tell the truth. Yeah. And I think too, um, being able to like give them, empower them. So I mean, for me, it's just because I'm maybe a bit lazy and I say, yeah, you figure it out. Like, but you know, help, help people out. But you know, my favorite is uh, one of my favorite uh, sayings is from John Mack. You know, he's a credit suisse running the desk and this guy came up on these trades. Hey, what do you think of this trade? What do you think of this trade? How many... And he's like, listen, the trade I made was hiring you. You're do the trade, right? It's like, okay. And then he did the trades and then they know they worked or they didn't. But, you know, if you're, if, but also I like to have people tell us bad news or tell us where we were. I, I, some of my favorite members are ones that say, geez, James, this is a really bad way to do it. I'm like, really? Holy crap. That's fantastic. I should, you know, maybe we can change that. Maybe we can't, but, you know, we at the end of our uh, conferences, we don't do like, you know, 10 different angles on every, every speaker and how you like them or how they smelled or whatever. We used to say, What'd you like? Would you not like? What can we do better? And then we get a ton of great information from that. That uh, I, I don't think you can get with those more granular, quantitative ones. And people will just say, "Meetings are too short. Fifty minutes is way too short." I was like, "Okay, we'll do twenty. Just change the gravitational constant of the universe, right? Done." And then if people like that, then we don't change it again. If people want to change it again, then we'll move it around. But you know, it's it's taking cues from from folks, and they'll tell you if they really like you, they'll tell you what's wrong. And then you can use that in, in further iterations. Well, James, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Before I let you go, for those out there that are listening that want to keep in touch with what uh, you're up to and what Cass is up to, what's the best way uh, for them to follow along in your journey? Well, there's LinkedIn. I'm probably the only James Perron out there. You're very active. Do a good Cassa. job. CA. Yeah. You, you, you give me a run, uh, run for my money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep on, keep on posting. Yeah, if, if we have a we have a member list uh, or a newsletter list people can subscribe to on our site caasa.ca. Uh, there's a few other casts out there. We're the only one that's Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets. Uh, it's always fun to Google Google the, the name every once in a while. But uh, yeah, and please get in touch. No problem at all. Thank you very much, James. And uh, until next time on uh, Dealmakers DNA. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.